The Lewis gun is a light machine gun. Manufactured during World War I, it's made of steel and wood. It weighs 28 pounds, 13 kilograms, and can spit out between 500 and 600 bullets a minute. The emu is a large, flightless bird native to Australia. It's made of muscles, sinew, and feathers. With a brain weighing just 21 grams, it's one of the dumbest of all birds. They've been known to charge at cars going down freeways. So if the two objects were pitted against each other in, say, a war, it seems obvious who would win, right? That's right, the emu. Welcome back to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that usually shares stories of heroism and defiance throughout the ages. Anthology of Heroes is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Elliot Gates, and today we're going to do something a little different. We've had some pretty dark episodes lately, haven't we? Concentration camps, trails of tears, and two brutal sackings. So I thought I'd change things up a bit this week. Today is going to be a bit of a silly one, so if you're a first-time listener, we're usually a bit more serious than this, I promise. Today we're going to be talking about my people's greatest shame, the so-called Great Emu War of 1932. You heard that right, Great Emu War. Believe it or not, as an Aussie growing up, we didn't get taught much about this strange one-month conflict with our native animals. Perhaps the government forbade it, I don't know. So what a surprise it was to me when I logged onto the internet as a curious young teenager and found my nation at the butt end of this joke. Since then, the mockings only increased. I've seen fake Wikipedia battle statistics. I remember one of them had the casualties listed as four emus and Australian dignity. I've seen emus photoshopped over maps of Australia pointing at our capital. And just the other day, I read that John Cleese is apparently working on a movie about it. Erwin Rommel, one of the most talented of all Nazi generals, is quoted as saying, if I had to take hell, I would use the Australians to take it. So what exactly went wrong here? How did veteran soldiers lose a war to emus? Let's find out together. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Most people know that the British colonised Australia, but what a lot of people don't know is that the Dutch probably got there first. On the much more sparsely populated west coast of Australia, the Dutch were the first to map the coastline. But they didn't settle. Instead, they effectively looked around and thought, "Mm, thanks, but no thanks, before heading off to somewhere with spices. 
That's right. At a time when Europeans were literally establishing colonies on sandbars in the middle of the ocean, they decided this place really wasn't worth the effort. And it's in this majestic state of Western Australia that our story begins. Around the year 1919, a large number of servicemen returned to Australia from World War I. The war was over and now they had no job. What were they going to do now? At the time, the government had this idealistic view of the Aussie battler. Hard men of few words, humble and never afraid to roll up their sleeves and get down to work. So why not turn the soldiers into farmers? It made sense, right? The country needed food and the soldiers needed jobs. So under this program, about 20,000 government-assisted farms sprang up across the country. And all the nation's problems were solved. Not really. When rubber hit the road, it became obvious that the policy hadn't really been fleshed out. The plots of lands were small, really small, meaning it was hard to turn a profit. The land was also not really great quality. It had high concentrations of salt and it was prone to frosting over. And whatever did grow, the rabbits usually just tucked into them. Compounding this, the people managing the land were soldiers, not farmers. By the late 1920s, a majority of farms had been abandoned or sold to neighbouring farmers. The government didn't really know what to do. So they sent in experts, pen pushers who had attended a lecture or two on agriculture and figured they were well-placed to educate these uh, quaint backward country folk. They arrived, stepping out of their black Ford automobiles into the red dust bowl of Western Australia. Sweating through their $1,000 suit, they'd suggest a fence here or a well there, and after a few days, they'd disappear into the sunset. The farmers were not impressed. And things were about to get worse. The Great Depression had just made landfall down under. Food prices plummeted across the world. Debt rose, and those already struggling farmers were now barely making ends meet. Most tried to mitigate their losses by diversifying their ventures. Oats, sheep, pineapple, wheat. If one failed, at least they still had the others. But once again, the government intervened. Prime Minister James Scullin introduced the appropriately titled Grow More Wheat campaign. Wheat was in demand at the time, and with the unemployment almost hitting 15%, the PM set a price for the crop at 14 shillings a bushel. The wheat would be exported overseas and hopefully ease pressure on the Australian economy. Abandoning all their other ventures, farmers enthusiastically embraced this scheme. Those in Western Australia would now exclusively grow wheat. However, Prime Minister Scullin was trying to catch a falling knife. Little did he know the depression was just getting started, and soon the worldwide price of wheat was around two shillings a bushel and tumbling. If his government followed through with his promised price, they'd go broke. So the same experts now advised the farmers to just store the wheat and wait for the price to rise. They reassured them, hey, don't worry, we're sure next month it'll be back to five shillings, surely. Anyone who believed them though was in for a world of pain as the price plummeted to just over one shilling a bushel. Scullin's government was voted out the following year and the new government offered the farmers four and a half pence per bushel a little over one-sixteenth of what the government originally promised. Just as it seemed like things couldn't get any worse, the weary farmers leaned on their shovels and gazed into the distance. The sight that beheld them was one that I hope I never have to see. On the horizon were emus, tens of thousands of them. After emus pair up and mate, 
they leave the drier plains of the Australian desert and head for greener pastures. Unfortunately for the farmers, loggers had cleared many of those green pastures for livestock. The birds' water supply had also been sectioned off to create lakes. So these emus, who would have usually just stopped for a quick bite and a drink before moving on, instead found this (laughs) oasis of everything an emu could ever need. They could drink the lakes dry as they chomped down on the farmer's hard-fought crop. And wouldn't you know it, the wheat was even tall enough for them to take a rest in. All for us, the birds mused, you shouldn't have. But these veteran farmers hadn't survived the Somme just to have their livelihood literally eaten away by overgrown chickens. Dusting off their service rifle, they took to the fields, downing as many of the birds as they could. For hours, the boom of the rifle carried across the fields, but it was futile. Not only were there thousands of birds, they were bizarrely resistant to bullets. One farmer reported that he put five bullets into a bird and the thing just kept on running. Standing upon a growing hill of spent bullet casings, the farmers admitted defeat. With thousands of birds and five shots per kill, it was pretty clear a rifle wasn't going to cut it. So being soldiers, they came up with a soldier's solution. How do we get our boys out of Dunkirk? Ordnance. They needed big guns. Back in France, when a rifle wouldn't do the job, they'd bring out the machine gun. So they petitioned the local government for help, requesting the deployment of a military division against these creatures. And the government, of course, rejected the ludicrous request. Nah, I'm just joking. Have you seen our politicians? Of course we said yes. Arrangements were made with the Perth Defence Force. Guns, ammunition and a whopping total of three men were allocated to the campaign, whom the farmers agreed to feed and house for the duration. A veteran brigadier protested the amount of ammunition the government had allocated. It was wasteful, he said, that so many bullets were being put aside for a couple of birds. But that veteran had only fought Germans, not emus. And so, two soldiers marched from Perth, led by Major Gwynedd Meredith. Accompanying them was a cinematographer who was hired by the government to produce a bit of propaganda, something to give the public to show, hey, we care about helping our fellow man. Look, we waged this ridiculous war against a flightless bird. Before they'd even arrived, people were sniggering. The press had dubbed it the Great Emu War, and the name stuck. When the soldiers arrived at the little outback town of Campion, a heavy storm arrived with them, sending the emus running. Meredith was a patient man, though. As the veteran's keen eyes watched his feathered foes scattered back into the brush, perhaps he recalled the words of the ancient master, Sung Su. If it is to your advantage, make a forward move. If not, stay where you are. Soon they spotted another mob of emus, and yes, that is the proper term for a group of emus, on the other side of town. The men rushed to the site, and tearing the cover off their Lewis guns, they unleashed a volley at the birds. But it was well short. They were out of range. Meredith recruited a bunch of civilian drivers to herd the emus towards them, hoping the wild birds would behave like sheep and just follow each other. The birds scattered in all directions. But a couple of them did find their way into his machine gun sights. A few seconds later, the dusty red ground was covered with hundreds of tinkling spent bullet casings. A small number of birds, slightly over zero but far less than ten, lay dead. First blood had just been drawn in the Great Emu War. Major Meredith had shown his men the plan was sound, but now he needed a big win to get the press office back. Great Emu War? I'll give you a Great Emu War, he probably thought. 
An army colonel breathed down his neck, though, adding to the pressure. The colonel had made him promise to bring back 100 emu skins, which he was very much looking forward to making into hats for his cavalry detachment. As the scorching Western Australian sun set, it's easy to imagine Meredith and his men stripped down to their skivvies in the kitchen of a civilian's house, an old map slung over the table and a few cold tinnies spread as they planned their next move. For now, the birds were sheltering in the safety of the forest, but they couldn't linger there forever. Soon they'd need water. Perhaps his finger slid over the old map until it came to rest on one of the largest lakes in the region. If they blocked access to this, the birds would need to come right through them. It was just like the Battle of Angelut, and he, Major Meredith, was Saladin. His hunch proved correct, and barely a day later, the men woke to a jubilant sight. Thousands of birds charged towards them, kicking up the red dust of the Australian outback behind them. Meredith had his moment. Mounting the machine gun, a wicked grin perhaps spread across his face as he aimed at the centre of the mob and clicked the trigger. But nothing happened. He pressed the trigger again and again and heard the gears crunch. The ammo belt had jammed. The birds were gaining ground, and with their Lewis gun out of action, the two other soldiers instinctively began firing their rifles, which sent the birds into panic, scattering them in every direction, including into the farmer's crop they were specifically trying to keep them out of. A few minutes later, Meredith had re-threaded the ammunition. The Lewis gun was good to go. For the rest of the day, the three men waited for their cunning foe to regroup. Sweating it out in the 35 degrees Celsius, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, desert sun, they sat and waited. But as the sun set, they admitted defeat and returned home to get some sleep. By now, the press had well and truly cashed in on the opportunity. Praise was heaped on the flightless bird's strategic planning and martial ability. One paper wrote, quote, The emus have proved that they are not so stupid as they are usually considered to be. Each mob has its leader, always an enormous black-plumed bird standing fully six feet high who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives a signal and dozens of heads stretch up out of the crop. A few birds will take fright starting a headlong stampede for the scrub. The leader always remains until his followers had reached safety. The camera crew that accompanied the soldiers had little to write home about. Everyone was laughing, except Meredith, whose feathers were well and truly ruffled. Going on rumours that emus in the south were more tame and <laughs> perhaps easier to fool, the centre of the operations was transferred south. But even here, the birds perhaps acting on intelligence forward to them from their northern cousins, refused to group up. And this leads us up to my favourite and the funniest part of the war. Flustered and hot, Meredith decided that if the birds wouldn't come to him, he'd go to them. Commandeering one of the farmer's trucks, he bolted his Lewis gun to the top of it and had a man stand in the pickup. If Fortunate Son was written at this point in history, I'm sure it would have been playing in his head as he rammed the pickup into first gear and sped after the birds. But Major Meredith was not driving along a paved road. He was driving through the Australian outback. The potholes, dunes, rocks, and brushes. The gunner was barely able to hold on, let alone shoot anything. Bullets flew in all directions, but none of them at the birds. Red from the heat and the humiliation of yet another defeat, Meredith slammed his foot onto the clutch and kicked the machine up as fast as it could go, a show-stopping 35 kilometers, 20 miles an hour. The gunner on top probably banged on the roof, desperately asking him to slow down, but it was no good. A single lone bird fell into his crosshairs. 
he got closer and closer, eventually running over the unfortunate creature. But even in death, the bird would have the last laugh. Losing control, the truck veered off course, bumping down a gully before crashing through the very same chain-link fence, which was, ironically, built to keep out emus. By November the 8th, the war had been going for six days, and it had not been going well. They had spent 2,500 rounds of ammunition, and Meredith's kill count was 200, amounting to 10 shillings per bird. And that's assuming the body count was inflated, which it almost certainly was. But even if we go by Meredith's numbers, it was still an incredibly expensive exercise in pest control. The new Prime Minister, Joseph Lyons, was finding himself at the butt end of jokes in Parliament. One politician demanded an inquiry as to who authorised this farce in the first place. Another smartass put the question to the PM as to where the medals would be handed out for the war. The sniggering turned into booming laughter as another MP yelled back that if so, they should be awarded to the emus who had won every battle so far. Hot under the collar, the PM stormed out of the Senate and got Meredith on the blower, demanding an explanation of what the hell was happening out there. Meredith's official report reads like Napoleon surveying the battlefield of Waterloo after his loss. Quote, The damage done by these birds has to be seen to be believed. He then describes the bird's endurance. Quote, It must be realised that an emu full out can do 45 miles per hour. Consequently, the target is, after the first burst, a very rapidly moving one and is only visible for a very short time. Moreover, the emu is an amazingly hard bird to kill outright. Many carry mortal wounds up to distances of half a mile. Before concluding with his bizarre dream of employing the birds for use in military service, quote, If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it could face any army in the world. They could face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like the Zulus, whom even the dum-dum bullets could not stop. End quote. But <laughs> there was some good news. Meredith confirmed that despite the odds they were up against, they had not lost any men in the war so far. The emu war had been a PR disaster. Major Meredith and his merry men, as the press had dubbed them, were killing the government's credibility and its budget. In fact, the only thing they weren't killing were emus. But the farmers were still inundated with these creatures, and the war was their best chance they had, despite how one-sided it had been. On November the 13th, another enormous mob was sighted. Meredith's hands must have shaken with excitement before he gave the word, Fire! Just like in Meredith's dreams, the birds dropped one after the other after the other, but his gunners underestimated the range and found out halfway through they were using ammo barrels that were only half full. According to Meredith, that day 25 emus were downed, the most successful day of the war so far, forever remembered as Black Sunday by emu kind worldwide to this day. But while Meredith and his merry men celebrated their hard-won victory, a new foe surfaced, animal rights activists. As it turned out, members of the public weren't too keen on going to war with their native animals. And just because the birds could take a phenomenal number of slugs before going down, it didn't mean they weren't suffering. Meredith's sun was setting, but there was time for one last hurrah. Putting aside ancient rivalries, the southern emus linked up with their northern brothers and travelled much further north into farms that, up until now, had been safe from the feathered menace. 
They easily passed wire fences that usually blocked their path because someone forgot to close the gate. So thousands of these creatures swarmed through to feast on the choicest wheat in the lands. The birds settled in for a smorgasbord. There was no time to lose. Meredith needed all the arms he could get. Stopping by the local rifle club, he mobilized the locals and set up patrols. With the new recruits, the Major was pleased to report a consistent kill rate of 100 birds per week. Once again, assuming these numbers are even correct, that is not cheap. Soon, the emus left the wheat fields, but their departure had nothing to do with Meredith. The harvest season was upon them, and with nothing to eat, the birds simply went elsewhere. On the 10th of December 1932, Major Meredith got his marching orders. The government was shutting shop on the emu war. What was originally meant to be a nice gesture to help out farmers had been anything but. It was a unique experiment, but not one the government was eager to repeat, ever. For the next decade or so, farmers would again and again call for the renewal of arms against the crafty birds, but the government had wisely learned its lesson. The hemu was to be both respected and feared. As part of the peace deal with the birds, the government were forced to add the animal to our coat of arms. Alright, maybe that's a lie. But that is the story of the Great Emu War. Once again, this episode was a bit of an outlier from our usual ones. So thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in, whether you listen from the gym, at home, driving to work, or drifting off to sleep. If you've enjoyed today's episode or you have any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Visit our website, anthologyofheroespodcast, or one word, dot com, or send an email to anthologyofheroespodcast at gmail.com. Recently, we've added a voicemail link to our website, so if you'd prefer recording yourself instead of writing, head on over and let us know where you're listening from and what your favourite episode's been so far. To stay up to date with our latest episodes, follow us on Instagram, at Anthology of Heroes, and Facebook, facebook.com slash Anthology of Heroes. We regularly post information about upcoming episodes, share supporting pictures, memes, and stuff like that. Also, if you're a new listener, don't forget to subscribe. You can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anything like that. Just search for Anthology of Heroes. Lastly, a huge shout out to our amazing patrons, Claudia, Tom, Caleb, Malcolm, Alex, Seth, Angus, Phil, Lisa, and Jim. Your support keeps the lights on here. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with something a little less silly. Take care. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.